When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. I'm Jason Bingham, your host, and I'm joined with Behind the Knife team members Nina Clark and Shanaz Hussein. Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Henry Buckwald. He's a professor emeritus of surgery in biochemical engineering at the University of Minnesota. He is a veteran. He's a world-renowned surgeon, author, professor, and patient healthcare advocate. He is a pioneer in the field of bariatric and metabolic surgery, recipient of numerous NIH grants with over 360 peer-reviewed publications, has contributed to over 100 books. He has served as the president of over five surgical professional organizations and is a winner of numerous awards as an educator, researcher, and clinician. He's also a high-volume clinician with over 10,000 surgeries under his belt. His recent book, Healthcare Upside Down, A Critical Examination of Policy and Practice, was born out of Dr. Buckwald's observations of the healthcare industry over the last 50 years. In it, he explores how healthcare has been turned upside down to serve the administrators of the system and away from its basic function of offering the best care for patients. More importantly, he discusses solutions for turning our broken healthcare system right side up to better serve all patients. Dr. Buckwald, thank you for joining us today on Behind the Knife. It's my great pleasure. Let's do it. Let's have uh, let's have a show and let let's try to tell people about the book. Okay. Well, great book, very timely. Um, I think it it highlights a lot of what uh, us who work as healthcare workers as well as patients are feeling about our healthcare system. So let's just jump right into it. So um, in the book, you talk, you know, that despite the USA's uh, prominent role in medical advancements. You highlight some of the ways that the United States is far behind in terms of various healthcare parameters. Could you start by discussing some of these parameters that you highlight in the book, just to give us, just to kind of frame the issue and give us a scope of what the problem is? First of all, let me correct you, Jason. You're not a doctor anymore. You're a provider. <laughs> and and uh, we don't treat patients anymore. We treat clients. And we work for a firm in, you know, that book, 1984 by Orwell, that actually was published in 1942 or 43, uh, showed that language precedes reality. And this has happened in our profession. We, we have become providers to our clients working for a firm 
dominated by an administocracy. And I didn't want this book to be just opinion or personal anecdotes, which it is. A lot of little stories in it. Uh, I wanted to start with the facts. So there are some world-recognized statistical criteria of how good a nation is doing in health care. And so in this book, I, I pick the major ones that are listed as the major uh, criteria by the World Health Organization. And I'm, I'm opening this book so I get to the numbers. And of course, the first one is life expectancy. And we are 46. Above us is Hong Kong at number one. Canada, 16, Germany, 27, United Kingdom, 29. Essentially, every European Western nation, New Zealand, Australia, and our neighbor Canada, have a better life expectancy. And, and we are 46. And then, then there is the next is mortality rate. Our mortality rate is 8.7. Uh, wait, I don't know this. And there's infant mortality a minimal mortality to health care, health care access, quality index, availability, and all these parameters. And then in specific areas like heart disease, cardiovascular events such as stroke, we are way down on the list. But we are number one in one category, cost. So we have at least when I wrote the book, 17% of our gross national product goes to health care. I think the nearest one close to us is Switzerland with 11%. So even from the advocates who say we can do health care the best way by a business model, it's a business failure. I mean, what business has survived by giving the least for the most money? Almost every other business will not survive under those circumstances. So that's how the book starts. It gives the data. It's sort of a wake up. You're being, as an American citizen, as a patient, and we're all patients at one time or another, you're being cheated. And that's the message I'm trying to get across. Dr. Buckwald, um, also in the beginning of your book, and actually in the beginning of what you just said, uh, you mention a lot of terminology, one of which being the word provider. Uh, and I feel like this is something I've seen a lot on like Twitter, uh, where people are very concerned about the term provider because it links together physicians and APPs. But you actually have kind of a different definition of, of it and, and a different concern about that term. Can you describe that a little bit for us? You know, we accepted provider because when the business community that runs healthcare today use that term, we're saying, yeah, we're providers, we provide healthcare, it's okay. But basically, it's a, it's a term that's used in the commodity world. I was always happy being called a doctor. I don't want to get into who is a real doctor. Is this degree as good as this degree and so on? I don't want to get into that, and that's meaningless. I, I just think when we're no longer called doctor, and that's the important thing, but something else, 
uh, we're denigrated. It, it's not that we worked so hard to get that title, because it has a meaning. If you go to the end chapter, or the next to the end chapter, doctor-patient relationship, that had a meaning in the past, because the patient said, my doctor. Now, what does that mean? It means, I trust this person. And the doctor said, my patient. And that means I take responsibility for this individual. And that's gone. I mean, how can you say my patient when it's interchangeable? When the firm says, uh, no, uh, you're very busy, and we have so-and-so provider who's not so busy. So when the patient comes in the next time, you'll see, they'll see the other one. How can you have such a relationship with a robot? And so the destruction of the doctor-patient relationship is at the heart of my objecting to the terminology because the terminology used to mean something, and the administrative business community knew this. And so, like Orwell, they started by changing the terminology, changing our designation changing the designation of the people we serve. Thank you. And I, I think, you know, the other term that you use a lot throughout your book and that you've already used today is this um, administocracy. Can you describe for our listeners a little bit about what that what that means? Because that's a new one for me. Yeah, I thought it was a new one for me, too. I thought I coined that term. But recently I read something else in the literature. I got to find out when that was published. And, and, and somebody else used that term. I guess it means, and I'm quoting again somebody, uh, the imperial rule of the administration. I guess that's the best way to define administocracy. It's an imperial rule by the administration. Uh, when I started, and, and I look at your young faces, uh, I mean, I started residency when I got out of the Air Force in 1960. Administrators were facilitators. The hospital administrator w would say, what can I get you? What do you need? What should we do? How should we expand? They were facilitators. But now they're dictators. They will tell the people who work in a hospital, and essentially most surgeons now, except for rural surgeons, are employees. You are employees. You got a job. And therefore, when you got a job, the boss will tell you what to do. And the boss will tell you, no, you know, you can't use this operation because they stay in the hospital too long. And uh, uh, this drug is too expensive. And uh, this opinion is, is not good for us, so don't voice it. And that's what's happened. And, and that's what I hope to encompass in the word administocracy. When you were discussing about this shift to medicine, you talked about how the patient-doctor relationship has been destroyed over the course of this transformation. And definitely this administocracy also favors the depersonalization of healthcare. What did you end up finding were the perspectives of patients and doctors on this transformation as you were writing your book? I found so many similar stories. The stories uh, were repetitive, different cast of characters, but they were repetitive. You call and had a operation or a patient who's had an operation calls and says, look, doctor, you told me to call. 
or you call the the firm and you say this is so and so my surgeon so and so told me to call if I had any trouble uh, I'd like to speak with him but you get a robot the robot transfers you to another robot and then the robot transfers you to an interrogator who I'm not sure doesn't break HIPAA rules because the first thing the interrogator wants to know is what is your insurance? The patient might say, I'm bleeding, doctor. I'm, I need to talk to my doctor. He says, what's your insurance? And uh, have you been out of the country? And this and that and this and that. And then they'll end up by saying, well, this doctor is busy for the next three months. And the so-called patient might say, but, but he was my surgeon or she was my surgeon. And the voice will say, I can put you in in two weeks with so-and-so. Now, that's the business model. The busy doctor can't do just follow-up. It's a waste of time, and time is money. So give the follow-up to somebody who is either starting a practice or hasn't got a following, isn't very good, or whatever. And that story is repeated over and over again. You hear people saying, I ever see the same person twice. And so there is no doctor-patient relationship. From the other perspective, uh, there is no uh, taking of responsibility. I'll give you two anecdotes in my own life. When I was a medical student at Columbia Presbyterian, on rounds one day, I mentioned that my wife had a cold or a flu. And uh, that evening, we lived in a fifth-floor walk-up four blocks from the university. There was a knock on the door at 8 o'clock, and one of the senior professors of medicine, a Dr. Pereira, George Pereira, was outside with a little black bag, and he says, with your permission, I'd like to examine your wife, make sure she doesn't have pneumonia. And so he did, and she was fine, and then as he left, I thanked him, and he said, this should be what you practice when you graduate. Now, on the other hand, February 1st, 2016, I was thrown by a horse. I've been riding horses all my life. I go down, or I used to go down, and, and do roundups and do ranching, and uh, this horse and I didn't get along. And uh, he went up and I went down, and I was taken to a hospitalist hospital. I was there 33 days. I had 11 broken ribs, uh, crushed scapular, displaced lung, and so on. I never had a doctor physician in the intensive care unit. Every day, a hospitalist walked in. I had nothing against hospitals, but a different face walked in and said, how are you? And probably before I could answer, he says, I'll look into the computer. And he was gone, or she was gone. And the next day, a different face walked in. And this was my stay in the intensive care unit uh, until I was able to take care of myself. I had my doctor-doctor relationship with me. And, and it's, that wasn't unique to that hospital. It, it, it's become routine. Healthcare is upside down. Instead of the patient being at the top, at the pinnacle of the pyramid, let us say, the patient is at the bottom. At the top is the administrator, and healthcare administrators today take home 30, 40, 50 million dollars a year. 
Where does that money come from? It comes out of your income, but most importantly, it comes out of patient care. Well, I'm glad to see that uh, you, you appear to be recovered from that uh, harrowing event. Um, you know, unfortunately, I've talked to, I think you talked to any physician or um, who has been a patient themselves or certainly had gone through similar things with their family. I think they uh, have had a very similar experience. And I've heard that, uh, that similar anecdotes um, in the past. So it does not appear to be a unique situation, unfortunately. Um, well, first, I wanted to thank you because uh, for including me into that, looking at all the, our young faces. I, I feel like I hear that less and less um, as time goes by. But uh, to your point, you have been doing this for quite a bit longer than any of us. So uh, my question is, when did you first notice this shift in healthcare to the business model and that start of that deterioration of the doctor-patient relationship. Was there a, a, a specific inciting event, maybe a policy change, or how did we start down this road? Well, I think I was startled one day, and this was as long as maybe 15, 20, 15, 20 years ago, somewhere in there, uh, when I was told that I leave my Foley catheters in too long. I don't do it for my amusement or for the amusement of the patient, I, I leave them in as long as I patient and I think they're necessary because I did the duodenal switches and a lot of the big revisional surgery. So my patients didn't need maybe some longer catheterization. And I was told, well, try to get them out on this and this day because it hurts our statistics. It hurts our standing if you leave your catheters in longer. And that sort of stayed with me, it is I'm supposed to take this catheter out of this patient who may not be able to have the catheter taken out because it would hurt the administrator's statistics. So that was sort of a singular, minor moment. But, I, you know, I've seen it build up in so many ways that voicing opinions, which we used to do so freely, uh, have been very much curtailed because physicians, doctors today are afraid to speak out because they're employees, because they can be fired. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You talk a lot about physicians as employees in today's day and age. And in your book, you talk a lot about how medical training has also shifted towards almost employee training rather than physician training. So I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on how and, and opinions on how this administrative ruling of, of the medical um, business, so to speak, has changed our, our medical school training and residency training. Well, that's where it all starts. It's the question of acceptance. If you're indoctrinated in medical school to accept the system, you don't know any other system. If you're indoctrinated into a system where you're going to leave and be an employee, these are the rules of a job, you don't know anything different. Medical schools is where it starts. 
because medical stools today are usually associated with some hospital network, and they're all in some sort of uh, an administocracy. Some are different. I read that, that Dr. Zimmer from Chicago died. He was a great president of a university. He believed in freedom of speech, uh, but he was unusual. This concept of top-down teaching, uh, dictating, if you wish, has, has permeated our universities. We talked a lot about the doctors and physicians' perspective, and we touched upon patients uh, talking about how difficult it is and they get shuffled between providers, and we're calling the patients as the ultimate payer. Why don't we make the healthcare system officially socialized then? What are the good and bad aspects of socialized medicine? Armed forces, Medicare medical assistance, VA hospitals, Indian Health Service. I've added them all up in terms of the gross national product. It's 60, 65%. That is socialized medicine. It is medicine in one way or another pervade through government, which is more or less uh, one definition of socialized medicine. The other percent is the private practice uh, medicine, you know, the insurance companies. That's only about 40% or so. But if you add it all up, every citizen is paying for it. Because if you have private insurance, you're you're sending a check every month. And if you don't have private insurance, you're paying it for out of your taxes. So you're paying for it. And every citizen is paying for the medical schools too, because medical schools are supported by taxes. Every citizen should say, hey, I'm not getting my money's worth. Call it socialized or non-socialized. Well, you know, the, you asked me a specific question. Basically, what, what's said about socialized medicine is, is it, it ends up uh, uh, with long lines waiting for services and ends up with, with the quota system. It, and, you know, there's all sorts of bad things. In some countries, it works beautifully. I mean, the Austrians, the Swedes, they're very happy with socialized medicine. I think you need a smaller nation, maybe, of uniform population. Uh, but I don't think socialized medicine is at all a solution for our country. And so you say, uh, what is a solution if you don't like socialized medicine and you don't like the medicine we have in terms of, of the hospital systems and the insurance companies who are among the leaders in the Fortune 500? I mean, these people are making out. I think we can use capitalism. Uh, basically, uh, I'm a fairly conservative capitalist. And we can use capitalism. We got to find entrepreneurs who say, I can give health care at a lower cost and make it better. And therefore, I'll get the business. Use the same business incentive, but use it like any other business person who wants to make a better car or a better whatever. And how do you do this? One place to do it is nonprofit fraternal organizations. Um, well, Jason and I know, Jason, uh, do you belong to USAA for insurance? I do. I do too. It's great, isn't it? It is. Our families belong to USAA. 
It's a fraternal organization of ex-servicemen and ex-service women. So uh, it's a fraternal organization. Uh, there are so many in this country. United Postal Workers, the Teamsters. Uh, these people don't have to go buy insurance. They can make their own insurance, pay their board of directors a reasonable income. Just a few million or so, but not 40 million. We can have a good system to supplement the government's supported systems. So I think it's very exciting. I think a lot of there are um, uh, some uh, very promising things that are happening right now. Uh, the examples that we thought of was, you know, what Mark Cuban and Jeff Bezos are doing um, with uh, online pharmacies to make things more affordable and those type of things. So a lot of these solutions that we're talking about, we're talking about big picture changes, universal health insurance, billing models in healthcare, training models in healthcare. But what can we actually do? Like what can what advice do you have for your employee surgeon out there, for your trainee out there, or even for patients? Like, what can we do to sh start turning the ship back to something that looks right? Well, I think if you try it on your own, you'll probably get crushed. So uh, th that's not advice I can give you. You have to work through your organizations, which have power. We have to convince the American College of Surgeons that this is an issue they have to get involved in. We have to all convince the American Medical Association and whatever field people are in, American Pediatrics or Endocrinology, uh, these organizations have power. And if they all work together, because they're all in healthcare, they got a lot of power. And certainly the Teamsters have a lot of power. And so you gotta work through your organizations and that means maybe uh, several steps. One is, is to realize that every person, be it a doctor, be it a patient, be it anybody, be it any citizen, realizes they're not getting a good deal. And, and that's what really the book is there for, Healthcare Upside Down. I'll give you the vision of myself in a sense in writing that book. But that's the first thing. And then you got to get together and talk to other people who don't think they're getting a good deal. And then sooner or later, you have to have an organization, and then people will change. Uh, you have to convince the politicians. The politicians' uh, main purpose is to serve their constituency and to get reelected. Well, you got to tell them this is important stuff. So in Hans Christian Andersen's book, the emperor's new clothes. The emperor is naked. And he's walking through the streets and his retainers are holding an invisible cloak. And a little boy says, but the emperor has no clothes. That's me. I'm the little boy. I'm saying, but the emperor has no clothes. And then several citizens cry out. And I always like this in, in that short story. They say, hear him. Hear him. And I hope people will cry out, hear him, hear him, and, and then do something about it. Well, fantastic. Well, I just wanted to uh, thank you for your time today. Um, I, I think your book is very timely. I know a lot of people who work in healthcare uh, are feeling frustrated. I know a lot of patients are feeling frustrated. I just wanted to give you a few minutes for any final thoughts of things that we didn't cover that you think we missed or potentially to leave us with uh, an excerpt from your book. 
Well, I think I can cover both. Let me read you the last few paragraphs from my epilogue. The opening moment of life and birth involves health care for mother and child. Growing up and achieving adulthood involves health care. Being able to live a mature life, to work, to love, to have children is dependent on health care. And the final chapter, aging, can be realized and even made pleasurable by health care. Health care is therefore integral to life from beginning to end. Healthcare is not a commodity, but a necessity. Healthcare needs to be treated with respect. The establishment, practice, and financing of healthcare affect everyone, should not be neglected by anyone, and must be the concern of all of them. I've been a doctor for 60 years, and during those years at times, I've also been a patient. I've held the hands of my patients, I've been the one whose hand has been held. I have received trust and given trust. The therapeutic decisions my patients and I reached were not subject to the interdiction of a third party. I do not want to have my life's role as a physician and surgeon, my joy in the process, usurped by an aristocracy. As a patient, I do not want to hold hands with a robot and confide my health problems to a faceless entity. As a doctor, a patient, a person, I reject the currently shattered doctor-patient relationship. Healthcare is upside down. Let us set it right side up. Fantastic. Well, the book is Healthcare Upside Down, A Critical Examination of Policy and Practice. You can find it on Amazon. Dr. Buckwald, thank you so much. My pleasure indeed, and thank you so much for having me. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.